Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our events, both in person and online. Coming up on the show today, Christopher M. Smith, a career U.S. Foreign Service officer and author of the new book, Ukraine's Revolt, Russia's Revenge. Chris, welcome to Bookstack. No, thank you, Richard. And uh, it's a joy to be here. So congratulations uh, on the book. And and I guess you never could have imagined when you wrote this book about the revolution in Ukraine in 2014, that it would be so timely in helping us to understand the current crisis. No, certainly not. Um, the draft of the uh, the book was completed in the very first part of uh, 2017. Um, so while I was uh, concerned about uh, you know where Russian disinformation, especially about Euromaidan, was heading at that point, um, I, I think none of us could have imagined uh, exactly what came. And so you were you were based in uh, Kyiv between 2012 and 2014 as a, a career foreign service officer. So you really did get to see the revolution there up close. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, as the book describes, um, you know, for the first uh, year and a half or so, um, you know, uh, I was uh, in the economic section uh, working on certain issues, uh, trade, uh, intellectual property rights. Um, before the revolution came. Um, and at that point, um, you know, we all kind of uh, turned into, uh, you know, different parts of this apparatus, mostly trying to tell Washington uh, what was happening in Kiev um, so that they could make their best decisions. And it, it is worth saying, of course, that you're speaking in a personal capacity on the podcast, that, that the views that you're expressing are not necessarily those of the of the US government. But as you say at the beginning, in some ways, the writing of this book comes from a frustration at the way that American diplomats were have been presented uh, during the revolution. Honestly, that was the sole motivation uh, for writing the book. Um, you know, while serving in Kiev, um, uh, the Russian Federation uh, was, uh, you know, constantly spinning a line, um, you know, that the U.S. embassy uh, was a secret uh, black hand behind the protests, um, that, uh, you know, we were uh, encouraging protests, uh, that we were paying for protests. Um, and while they were saying this, uh, working at the embassy, um, it was <laughs> deeply frustrating. Um, I, I think uh, to me personally, I had uh, never had my uh, work uh, misrepresented and lied about, uh, you know, so, so thoroughly. Um, and so uh, when I came back to the US after the tour, having uh, witnessed uh, these events, um, I was really shocked that uh, there were even a lot of Americans who kind of believed uh, this sort of line. Um, and so I uh, thought of the idea of uh, coming up with some work that could represent um, what the embassy was actually doing during that time. Um, because um, to me personally, I, uh, I felt we had a lot to be proud of. Um, and I also felt like uh, the uh, you know, Russian uh, disinformation complex uh, was constantly speaking about this issue, constantly speaking about Ukraine, constantly mischaracterizing Ukraine. Um, whereas uh, we Americans really said very little. Uh, you know, at the time there were official statements from the podium, but I think most of the American audience moved on 
Um, whereas in Russia, that was never the case. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the the points that you make early on, early on that it is an accepted fact, isn't it, in Russia that the revolution was um, was American sponsored, and also, as you say, that that is something which has had some traction in the West too. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, um, and it's it's very important, um, you know, to to me to hopefully explain a little bit about um, where that uh, misrepresentation, where that propaganda uh, came from, um, and to um, put some holes in it as much as possible. Yeah, one of the the, the approaches that you take is, is an interesting one, because essentially you've been given access to the unpublished email archives of the uh, of the embassy uh, in Ukraine, uh, just talk. Just talk to me about the logistics of having access to that material. The kinds of conversations that you had to have with the uh, historian in the uh, in the State Department. I mean, those of us who've worked on the historical side know that Foreign Relations of the United States series that uh, that that they have produced for many many years. How how did you get access to to this material, and what were the constraints that you were acting under? I was very lucky um, in this case uh, to have my own personal copy of the um, uh, embassy email archive. Um, once the crisis started, um, there was a embassy Kiev uh, task force that was set up um, that had its own listserv. And as the crisis continued, almost everything was funneled um, through that particular email address. Uh, you know, be it our ambassador's requests for officers in the field, Washington's requests uh, for our ambassador, uh, different news items, everything seemed to come uh, through that uh, email uh, listserv. Uh, when I was leaving post um, with really no uh, thoughts of writing a book, um, you know, I uh, took a, a CD copy of that uh, with me. And uh, frankly, it uh, sat in a box um, for several years um, and, until I finally had the opportunity um, to make use of it. And there's a, there's a, there's a long tradition uh, of official histories. I mean, the, the Office of the Historian is a, is a good example of it, but, but there are others too. Um, what, what, what constraints did you feel yourself to be working under? Clearly, uh, you're kind of writing a, a kind of an account which uh, you think is uh, authoritative, and it kind of, you, at, at times, you're quite critical of the, uh, of the American approach uh, in Ukraine. And yet, nevertheless, as we said at the beginning, you are a, a serving a serving foreign service officer, uh, and so on, and so therefore, you know, you are working under uh, kind of cer- well certain constraints. True, um, but those constraints um, were actually not that um, not that serious um, as time went on. My my goal with this uh, work um, was to um, give a relatable narrative. Um, you know, I knew that this could easily become um, kind of an overly academic treatise, um, and I didn't want that. Um, I wanted it to be actually interesting and fun to read, um, which is why much of it is told uh, in the first person. Um, you know, of course, not all of it can be told in the first person um, because, uh, you know, I wasn't present for much of it. Um, but, you know, to the extent possible, you know, I, I tried to you know, present it as a story, you know, as, as narrative, um, you know, 
um, with regards to uh, getting it uh, cleared, um, once it was written, I had to uh, put it through State Department clearance channels. And, uh, you know, I am uh, happy to say that they uh, changed very, very little. Um, and, and just to say in general, um, you know, I, I think um, I, I felt myself as very supportive um, of U.S. policy um, while I was there. You know, at times I do wish we could have done more. Um, but, um, you know, on the whole, um, you know, I felt our policy and what we did and our story, uh, you know, really was something that Americans could be proud of. And so you didn't feel yourself to be under a kind of, well, either pressure from the State Department or or even what somebody like Chomsky, I, I suppose, would would describe as a kind of a self-censorship while you were while you were writing. No, um, I, I think, um, you know, as this is my uh, first book, I think my greatest pressure was uh, on myself to actually, um, you know, make it um, what I wanted to, wanted it to be, you know, a real readable narrative to to demonstrate what we were doing at the time. Um, yeah, it, I, I honestly did not feel um, self-censorship um, because frankly, it was a story I wanted to tell. It was a story I was driven to tell. And, uh, you know, not from a point of view of being upset with what we did um, or upset with really anything about U.S. policy. Um, I really wanted to give the real story um, because we had been lied about. And you'd, I mean, you'd had a long interest in Russia and the region. You'd travelled to Russia as a as a student to study Pushkin. I mean, in in some ways, perhaps it was inevitable that 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 interest would translate into your diplomatic career. Yes. Well, I uh, got very lucky. Um, you know, my uh, parents paid for me to go on a trip to Russia in. Uh, uh, 1992, um, when they really couldn't afford it, um, you know, that uh, trip changed my life. Uh, you know, that's when I decided that I really wanted to do something with international affairs. Uh, that's when I met my uh, my wife. Um, and um, yeah, the, the rest, um, the rest is history. So remind us uh, what happened uh, in the revolution and how the government of President Yanukovych ended up being kicked out of power. So uh, President Yanukovych has a very interesting history um, in Ukraine. Um, maybe some of the listeners will recall the uh, Orange Revolution um, a decade before these events. Um, that was a kind of street level protest against um, a, a rigged election um, that he had um, uh, illegitimately won. Uh, those protests led to a, uh, a second election. Uh, that he didn't win. Um, after that, um, he was on the outside um, until he was um, elected some years later. Um, so um, you could say that uh, President Yanukovych um, had a already deep-seated feelings about uh, street protests um, and about, um, you know, specifically kind of, uh, you know, anti-corruption, uh, pro-democratic actions. Um, so, like a lot of other Ukrainian presidents, um, he had spent quite a bit of time straddling both sides, uh, you know, Russia and the European Union, um, you know, trying to, let's say, extract concessions from both sides in order to back off uh, from the other. Um, he had gone quite a long way 
towards negotiating an association agreement with the European Union. Um, after a trip to see Vladimir Putin, uh, he came back um, uh, in November of 2013 and uh, abruptly announced that uh, he was not going to sign the association agreement um, and that uh, the deal with the EU was off. Um, this led to very small scale street protests, uh, mostly of students and others uh, who came to camp on the Maidan um, in downtown Kiev. Um, this went on for a few weeks. Um, most uh, of the Ukrainian media um, was already paying limited attention to it. Um, and then the night of November 30th, uh, 2013, um, Viktor Yanukovych sent in, sent in police with truncheons um, who beat this crowd of largely college students on the square. Um, that move really changed everything. Uh, within days, there were tens and then hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets. Euromaidan was born. Um, in those early days, um, it was a very uh, calm, peaceful movement up until around um, January 21st, um, when there was an entire raft of uh, new legislation, um, which basically criminalized everything that the protesters were doing. Um, there was then uh, quite a bit of violence um, that started from that point up until mid-February um, when Yanukovych um, unexpectedly to everyone uh, fled Ukraine. Um, Yanukovych had recently signed an agreement um, with uh, political opposition leaders, um, with other political leaders in Ukraine um, on legitimizing his rule for at least another year. Um, everyone expected him to uh, to stay, and, and but um, uh, there was in mid February um, a massacre on Maidan. Um, there were snipers on rooftops um, who killed uh, dozens of protesters on the square. Um, and the next day, Yanukovych was gone. Yeah, you you say actually in the book that your great fear is that the Ukrainian military would get involved and that there would be uh, even more bloodshed. That bloodshed would be considerable. You say, and what I wonder what what kind of contacts did the embassy have with the military? What was the what was the embassy doing at this very delicate moment uh, to make sure that things did not escalate in that way? Right. Well, I know that our defense attache office um, had very regular contacts um, and uh, the Pentagon also had regular contacts, um, you know, as far as the exact nature, um, you know, it, it's difficult for me to talk about it on a day by day basis. Um, but the overriding message was of civilian control of the military and that militaries should not become involved in civilian conflicts. Uh, you also, you talk about the flash telegrams, the kind of telegrams you say that means that the Secretary of State has to get out of bed. Um, what I mean, what, what was the balance at times like this between the kind of staff work that was being done in the embassy um, and the kind of political direction that was kind of pushing things in one direction or another coming from Washington? Mm-hmm. You know, I... At times of crisis like this, um, 
Washington needs a tremendous amount of information. And, um, you know, the more high-level people are involved in the decision-making process, the, the greater the appetite is. And um, that becomes a big part of the embassy's work. Um, you know, running around, talking to everyone involved, um, observing what's going on on the street, um, doing everything we can to give Washington um, the most uh, reliable, accurate picture possible. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what almost the entire mission was, uh, was doing at the time. Um, you know, our ambassador was also out doing, uh, direct diplomacy. Um, you know, I know in the book we mention, um, uh, Domat Afetserov, um, you know, a, uh, building, um, very close to the Maidan that looked like it was going to become a, a point of great violence. Um, and uh, Ambassador Pyatt was able to intervene very directly uh, to get government forces um, out of the building um, so that they wouldn't be harmed. Uh, you know, at moments like that, um, we were able to to weigh in. Um, you know, and for me, that uh, you know, that is a point of pride. You know, that things like that really did matter. And the the Secretary of State at the time is John Kerry. The Deputy Secretary is William Burns, who's taking a lot of responsibility. I mean, how actively engaged are they in the kind of the day to day decision making that is going on? I would say very, um, but um, you know, between us um, and your listeners, obviously, um, you know, my uh, you know my position didn't really put me in the middle of all of that uh, communication. Um, you know, what I do know is that when uh, Secretary Kerry, when Vice President Biden, and others uh, came to Ukraine, uh, you know, their direct interventions really did have an impact. One of the the things that you do do uh, that is is fascinating is that you are sent uh, on kind of uh, reconnaissance trips to first to to Crimea, um, also to Donetsk. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, one of the things I found fascinating was on your trip to Crimea how you get a very clear sense that the the local population has no great enthusiasm for being part of Ukraine. Um, what what do you do with that kind of information when you pass that back to the embassy? Right. Well, I think what we got a sense of was that there was already a large-scale um, campaign going on there um, against what was going on in Kiev. Um, I don't know that I would say that they didn't want to be part of Ukraine. Um, you know, I, by this point, I think the fact that Ukraine and, or sorry, that uh, Crimea and Donbass and these places were part of Ukraine uh, was just sort of settled business. Um, you know, it wasn't really a question that people there were were asking. Um, but what we did hear uh, when we were there, um, as part of the last team through before uh, the big grab, um, was that. Um, there was a large PR push, um, especially in public places, um, to cast what was going on in Kiev uh, as a right-wing coup. Um, and there were militias being formed, uh, especially among uh, gun owners uh, in Crimea. 
Um, we also, of course, noticed um, that the official political leaders uh, canceled their meetings with us um, at the last moment when we were on the ground. Um, but we were still able to uh, to meet with some other folks and uh, get some good observations. T to answer your question about what we do with that information, um, you know, we put all of that in uh, diplomatic cables um, and uh, send that back to Washington. So I wonder, I mean, this this experience of uh, seeing what happened during the revolution, being there when uh, Vladimir Putin makes that grab for uh, Crimea, uh, as you say, I mean, obviously, as a, as a serving officer, you can't talk too much about events that are going on today. But I wonder, uh, how do you feel that the context of what you saw uh, should inform us as we kind of think about policymaking um, and action, indeed, uh, during the Ukraine crisis today? Yeah. Well, one of the points um, in the book that I felt was very important um, was to, uh, especially in the Donbass, um, to push back against this notion um, that, um, that there was a organic movement um, that led to this creation of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic. Um, you know, another one of these trips that we took was to Donetsk. Um, and um, we really didn't find anyone who was, you know, questioning what was uh, Donetsk or Lugansk's role inside of Ukraine. Uh, you know, remember that uh, President Yanukovych was from Donetsk. Um, you know, they had always been quite integrated um, into uh, into what was going on, um, you know, to me, that was a, an important point to get across. Yeah, it's it's interesting. At one point, you say in the book that Russia was in the game as usual, and and I suppose that is the point, isn't it? That this has always been uh, what uh, Henry Kissinger would call a, a Russian sphere of influence. Um, Russia is always going to be in or want to be in the game. There, um, how how does the West go about uh, balancing that kind of fact on the ground uh, with the 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 kind of the pull in the other direction that uh, clearly the Ukrainian government have shown in their in their brave fight so far? It's really very, very difficult. Um, you know, the time period in this book um, sort of straddles um, really two epochs, you know, in Ukrainian history. You know, the one was when this question was, um, you know, being discussed in think tanks um, when, uh, you know, it was the point of newspaper editorials and trade negotiations, you know, and, uh, you know, in a more, I don't know if you should say civilized realm. Um, by the end of Euromaidan, um, you know, something that people thought was beyond the pale had already become reality. Um, that was one side uh, using brute military force um, to try to resolve these, these questions. And, and I think it's easy to forget just how unthinkable that was, um, say, before uh, November 2013. Um, Euromaidan was really the turning point. Um, and if I may use that to discuss one other thing, um, which is... Um, corruption issues, um, you know, which I feel is is really the center of all of this. Um, when 
people look back today at Euromaidan, um, they think about it as, uh, you know, oh, was it anti-Russian? Was it pro-European? Um, I think that's really very decide beside the point for most protesters that were there. Uh, for most protesters, it was purely an anti-corruption movement. Uh, you know, they were upset um, and didn't want to be ruled anymore by people that they felt um, were highly corrupt. And when it ended, um, that is really what it was. Um, but throughout that time, uh, the Russian Federation really felt the need to redefine it. Um, you know, all of these terms that you hear today, um, the Ukrainians being, um, uh, you know, Nazis or fascists, uh, you know, it's, it's all an attempt to redefine what that pivot point meant uh, and redefine it away from being a, you know, grassroots movement against corruption, um, because such a thing is quite threatening uh, to Moscow. And and what do you make about uh, the the promises and encouragement that was being offered by the European Union at the time and, and also NATO at the time? You know, l looking back, do you think that that was the right thing uh, for them to have done? That that th this these kind of promises of of future uh, engagement and uh, even mm -hmm. membership? Yeah. Uh, well. The United States and me personally um, were very supportive of the EU association agreement um, because of the high standards for Ukraine. Uh, the EU association agreement um, had a great deal of language on anti-corruption, on judicial reform, on all of the things that I think we all believed Ukraine really needed to become successful. Um, and frankly, it's something that the types of Ukrainians who would later participate in the protest movement also felt um, would take Ukraine away from its corrupt past towards um, a more European future. Um, to me, I, I believe the association agreement um, was exactly the right move for Ukraine. Uh, the EU hadn't uh, promised um, membership um, or even a timeline for membership. Um, but the association agreement was a step in that right direction that would show that Ukraine had chosen a European path. Um, that seemed uh, completely um, appropriate. And maybe I should mention also that uh, even Vladimir Putin himself uh, claimed um, that he had no issues with Ukraine signing the association agreement. Um, which is something incredible to look back on now. And 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 what do you make of the the arguments of of people like Michael Mandelbaum, who've who've argued that 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 these kind of uh, that exactly the kind of um, prospects that you were kind of talking about, they flew in the face of of, of kind of historical and and strategic reality. I've listened to all of these arguments through the years um, and can only come away with the thought that they negate the sovereignty of the people that you're talking about. Um, you know, when you talk about the fact that, uh, you know, Russia has a right to a sphere of influence, um, basically you relegate 
all of those countries in that sphere of influence to a zone where they no longer make their own decisions, to where they're no longer really people. Um, you know, they are they are pawns on a chessboard where some are kings and queens, and uh, you know, you just must accept your lot in life. Um, you know, to me, that's fundamentally against our American principles. But it but it is an an interesting contrast, isn't it? That I mean, it, you talk at the end of the book about how uh, kind of essentially that 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 as American diplomats, that the question you have to ask yourself is, did we fulfil our moral duty, which is by its very nature inseparable from our own long term interests? And yet, realists would argue that whether we like spheres of influence or not, they 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 have existed throughout history, and that a kind country like Russia, which has been invaded from by Napoleon, by the Kaiser, by Hitler, uh, is is going to make these kind of strategic considerations. So, you know, how how do we balance those kind of things, morality, moral duty, as you describe it, but also the kind of the reality of, of power as it has manifested itself historically over 200, and 200 or more years? That's a difficult question, um, but uh, I would just submit for consideration um, that if we are not bringing our values um, to the table, um, that we are neglecting our largest strength. Uh, you know, other nations want to associate with us um, because of our values. Um, and, um, you know, if we come to the table um, already abrogating those, you know, already um, giving up on some of our core beliefs, um, we are kind of dulling the, the moral sword that is probably our most important asset. And finally, Chris, one of the the most consequential figures in uh, recent uh, American foreign policy, Madeleine Albright, uh, died this week. Uh, she was the first uh, woman Secretary of State. She was also one of the architects of of NATO enlargement in during the uh, Clinton administration. I wonder uh, what what do you think her legacy will be as as a Secretary of State? Oh, I think she will always be fondly remembered um, at the State Department um, as someone who uh, cared deeply about the institution of American diplomacy um, and, you know, someone who even after she left office um, continued teaching and mentoring so many at the State Department. Um, you know, her legacy as far as uh, NATO expansion and everything that happened during the those consequential years um, of the 90s, um, you know, it, it's part of the, the fabric of the world that we're all in today. Um, so she, she will certainly be missed. So the book is Ukraine's Revolt, Russia's Revenge, as written by my guest, Christopher Smith, and published by Brookings Institution Press. Uh, but for now, Chris, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much, Richard. Much appreciated. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.